Hello, I'm Andrew Wass, and welcome to Second Rate Film School. Today we have a very special guest star, returning front of the show, Lance Falk. Welcome back, Lance. Hey, good to be here. Yes, Lance was a guest earlier this year discussing his multi-decade career in animation, working on such franchises including Rick and Morty, Johnny Quest, SWAT Cats, and above all, Scooby-Doo. Yes, Lance was on the production team that made the big four Scooby-Doo movies from the late 90s through early 2000s, which include Zombie Island, The Witch's Ghost, Alien Invaders, and The Cyber Chase. So if you haven't checked that one out, pause this and go watch that first and then come back here. Today we're going to be focusing on Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders because that's the one Lance wrote. Now, I loved all these growing up, but Alien Invaders has a special place in my heart. I'm such a nerd, I have it on DVD, but I also still have the VHS of it. And heck, I even have the children's book adaptation for it. So I'm really excited to be talking about this one on our commentary track. Um, but before we get into that, Lance, why don't you give a quick recap of how you and your team got involved in Scooby-Doo? Well, we were a, um, we meaning Davis Doy, uh, who, uh, the top producer, top artist on these things, designer Jim Stenstrom and uh, writer Glenn Leopold and myself were kind of a team that was doing a little bit of development work. We'd worked on as a group with Jim Stenstrom uh, uh, and Drew Gentle and a few other uh, stalwarts worked on a, a show called SWAT Cats all together. And we bonded really well as a team. And then we worked on a an iteration of Johnny Quest that was in tremendous trouble and they got rid of the previous team and our team was brought in to kind of shore it up um and then uh and then we were kind of rolled into a development period that didn't really bear any fruit but we worked well together and came up with a lot of interesting things and then what happened was uh there were like uh, polls at supermarkets of um like moms or costco or whatever and and they said who are you familiar with this character that character that character and they had a list all of them knew Scooby-Doo and it seemed to be kind of in the zeitgeist in the popular uh, popular uh, um, consciousness. And um, so Hanna-Barbera said, well, let's make a Scooby-Doo thing. We are, uh, we've got this team sitting around doing development. Why don't we, why don't we uh, uh, make a new Scooby-Doo thing? But they also wanted to break in, into the directed video feature length market. So, well, we'll do a Scooby-Doo director video. So the budget would be, the length would be about three three episodes. The budget would be equivalently five or six episodes. Uh, so they, they invested a little bit more into it. And then let's do one. And um, that's kind of how we got started. Um, a story I like to tell is that there was sort of a brain trust of Davis, head artist, uh, Jim Stenstrom, or, uh, or Davis overall supervisor, who's also a great artist, but Jim Stenstrom, the top artist, Glenn Leopold, uh, the top writer, and myself is kind of a, a jack of all trades and, and involved in different as aspects of things. And uh, we had a meeting and said, okay, we're going to make a half hour or hour and a half Scooby movie. What are we going to do? And Jim Stenstrom raises his hand and says, guys, I, can we just do real monsters? Can we just tired of the unmasking thing? It's kind of old and, you know, we should, I don't know. Can we just do monsters? And Glenn Leopold, who's more of a, a Scooby traditionalist said, uh, well, here's the thing. 
we're making Scooby-Doo. And part of Scooby-Doo is the unmasking. And the fans are going to want to see that. And then if they don't get that, we're changing the show. And we're not doing, we're not doing the show for us. We're doing the show for them. And then Davis, his point was, this is true, but you, you can, you can uh, yank people's chains for about 20 minutes with a mystery and give them clues and they have an unmasking at the end. If you do that for an hour and a half, that doesn't work. It's like um, when Twilight Zone went from a half hour to an hour. It just, the stories didn't work because it set up punchline. It's, it's like a joke structurally. It's like that clue, 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 reveal. And if you do that for an hour and a half, it's, it's a problem. And I raised my hand. I said, well, what we got to do is we have to, in, in the same story, we have to have a mystery to solve, but also some real monsters to thicken the broth. To uh, And also it would help us structurally, like we'd have clues that you think one thing, and then it would be the other thing. So you'd almost have two stories going on the interweave a little bit. But it will give the audience a lot to chew on and figure out. And the very, very opening of Alien Invaders, we do that. And I will explain that when we get to the opening credits. So we made that movie. It was a much, much, much bigger hit than anyone had assumed. And you know the adage where a, a uh, success has a million parents and a failure is an orphan. Okay. And because it did really well, management didn't leave us alone for the second movie they went oh they want part of that success so they so they like they found live action writers who apparently are better than animation writers which you can uh, the, the lie to that is the dc stuff you know is like how great the animated products written and how the movies are written and uh, i can i can attack our competitors right uh no they're not the competitors same company well anyway uh, I, I stand by that anyway. Um, so they they gave us a script written by these these guys, and it was okay. There was a good idea at the heart of it. There was a good mystery, um, but we had to really add a, la a last third to it because they only had the unmasking and the mystery, and we added a whole supernatural third on the end and tightened it up. But it worked really well. And then they left us alone. And that brings us to Alien Invaders, which uh, um, uh, by then Glenn had moved on to another project and Davis asked me to write it with him. And uh, how that started was I, you know, I, I, he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I'm a big sci-fi nerd. Let's do it. Let's do an alien invasion one, you know, where part of it's fake and part of it's real. And I said, the twist is the, the real aliens are benign. They're really good. And not only that, they're, they appear as a beautiful woman and a beautiful dog that Shaggy and Scooby love, fall in love with. So I came up with all that. So you wrote Alien Invaders, and the next film was Cyber Chase, which was also your team's last film with the franchise. So what's the story behind that? They really dumped a script on us and dump is the best word for it and it was impossible to produce and we had we and uh, boy i you know i'm not sure how much i want to say in the record but it was it was something that like basically ended our association with the project is after doing that script and then they wanted us to do another 
number five with the same writers. And we were just like, no, you know, we're not interested. And uh, that's kind of ended our involvement. And then it went on to another team for a while. And then it went on to another team for a while. And then it went on to another team for a while. And the Scooby DTVs, which continue to this day, have gone through a number of production teams. Um, whether you can say they, uh, you know, it's cursed in that sense, or whether you can say like people just want to do a handful and then move on. I don't know. I'm only really familiar with one of the post um, uh, post us scripts was uh, one called uh, Scooby and the Samurai Sword because I was a I was hired as a prop designer on it for a fellow named Joe Sitka who did a great job and and was a terrific boss and that movie came out really good. Well, I know your involvement in the grand scheme of things is pretty short, just being four years. But outside the original 1969 series of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? I think these movies are probably the most impactful for the entire franchise. Since you guys made yours, not a single year has gone by without at least one movie, special, or TV series being on. Prior to the 1998 premiere of Zombie Island, there was actually pretty large gaps between the productions. Not counting reruns, commercials, bumpers, or that one Johnny Bravo crossover, not a lot was going on with Scooby in the 90s. The most recent series had rap production in 1991 with a pup named Scooby-Doo. And the most recent Scooby-Doo product at all was 1994's Scooby-Doo and Arabian Nights. And that's not even a full Scooby thing. That's just wraparound segments of Shaggy and Scooby with other cartoons. Right. Yeah, you and the team really just created the cream of the crop of Scooby-Doo in general and really reinvigorated the franchise as a whole. So... On behalf of all the fans, I am eternally grateful for this. I love these movies to death, and I'm really looking forward to talking about them. So without further ado, let's get the ball rolling on this. We're going to stop talking in a second, and then there will be a five-second countdown, and that'll give you the chance to press play as soon as that countdown's over, and then you will be within sync with me and Lance watching the movie. So we'll see you in a bit. Dun, dun, dun. Hey, there we go. All right. We are beginning a commentary on Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders. It is October 2023. And uh, as you can see by the opening credits, we are establishing that the aliens in this show are real. This is a point of view of a flying saucer going from other galaxies into our solar system, past the outer planets, towards Earth. And... This is a very clear uh, indicator. To, there's the asteroid field. Here's uh, asteroid belt. Here's a clear uh, message passing the moon, a clear message that this is real. So when the, um, the alien saucer goes into Earth's atmosphere, and here's a ni nice little uh, CG bit that I like, kind of early in CG. Oh, yeah, it's a really cool shot. Here we go. Here we go. Past the South Station. South stands for uh, Search for Alien Life Forms. Uh, and um, we couldn't, it's based on a real organization called SETI, which is Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI, which is a real organization that does this job, but we couldn't make, because ultimately, and you know, you don't watch commentary before you watch the movie. Everyone knows that i'm gonna spoil it right now these are the bad guys so uh 
we were not going to make the the real SETI guys the bad guys. Um, so we had to make up something. Uh, these three characters, um, originally when uh, I was writing this, I was kind of marathoning my way through the series ER. And I, I, I really liked Noah Wiley. I liked his John Carter character. So I thought like, well, why don't we get Noah Wiley in and play this guy? And uh, he's kind of designed to look a little like him. And his agent or he wasn't interested in the project. So darn it, we had to settle for Mark Hamill, who's friggin' amazing. And uh, the hardest thing to working about with Mark isn't the extraordinary quality of the work. It's the fact that I saw Star Wars like a hundred times in theaters and not to geek out at him. Uh, and he is a super nice guy. He's like definitely my favorite celebrity I've ever encountered. Um, so here we are with the gang and uh, uh, doing their thing. Now, the writing of this show was sort of, um, you'll see three different writing credits. You'll see mainly a story with Glenn Leopold and then the script by Davis and myself. Um, Glenn was not properly credited on the second movie on um, Witch's Ghost. So what we did, we slid his credit over to this film and he contributed a handful of ideas, um, like the jackalope was his idea, and a few little scenes and a few jokes and things. And Glenn did a, a tremendous amount of work on the other two movies. He wasn't given credit. So what we did was he uh, he was given uh, a heavier credit on this one to make up for it, which is a matter of residuals and things to make things a little fair. And then down the road, I was going to get a bigger credit and it would all even out eventually. But we didn't do enough movies for that to happen. Anyway, uh, Glenn is extraordinary. He wrote Zombie Island, I think, is the best one ever. Um, and uh, uh, But mainly I came up with the basic plot of this entire story, the premise. And Davis and I split the scenes. I would say that I wrote primarily the beginning um up until the end of the first alien chase scene and then davis and i split it where it was the gang of three investigating and all the character stuff in the diner and all he wrote all that stuff the stuff with lester all those really fun characters like Dottie and sergio and so forth uh davis did all of that and my focus was really on the um shaggy and scooby amber and crystal material and then i wrote the end from pretty much the chase to the end scene and i'm i'm a little proud to say that i do get a little choked up at the girl saying goodbye to the guys and uh it definitely made our voice director cry <laughs> in the booth and that kind of thing um so now uh we come up to the first of my two little snarky jokes is uh, you know, of course, Shaggy is is the joke about Shaggy. He's a bit of a bit of a, a druggie that, you know, can't do the kids show, but uh, it's implied. And so when Shaggy says, I know where she keeps the stash, Scoob. Well, stash is a, you know, drug term. Of course, he pulls out Scooby snacks. But uh, that is definitely a uh, an acknowledgement of that, you know, if you want. Um, That's for the parents. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, we have to kind of downplay that stuff. And I think it's right to downplay it, maybe a little naughty to even have something like that in. But when he says the word stash, you know, it's like, what? And then he pulls it real Scooby Snacks and we undercut the, 
you know the joke deliberately um uh, but all the this is all the stuff i wrote um and um uh one other aspect of the story that i find interesting is that is that uh the gang of three investigate very doggedly and follow clues and interview people and da 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 and get there through th sheer force of intellect shaggy and scooby are basically agents of chaos and it's almost like they accomplish the the same thing by falling through a hole in the ground you know um they literally stupid their way there yeah yeah and and shaggy and scooby and the gang of three end up in the caves making the same discovery at the same time only the other guys had to work and these two didn't um i'm also a little proud of my uh uh, like really giving them a love interest, I think for the first time. And also that aspect of she's, she's basically share in the sixties, you know? Um, so it's like this young kind of vaguely half native American girl with a, you know, bell bottoms and a peace symbol on her neck and that kind of thing. And that's because as the story reveals, um, you know they're getting signals from signals from earth but those signals are decades old so they think everything's you know like laugh-in and and mod squad you know so she shows up dressed like a native garb to fit in and it's grossly out of date of course for shaggy it's like right on the money for shaggy and scooby they're like oh man they're just like us you know so that was a little little fun i had um Another little thing I should mention is, is the setting, is the desert, um, and especially the caves. And a long time ago, my mother lived in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I live in Los Angeles. And I drive out to see mom, you know, a couple of times a year. And I really, really fell in love with the American Southwest. Um, and every time I go, I would take a different route there and a different route back and take little side trips and you know, the Grand Canyon in various places. And my favorite thing I ever saw was the Carlsbad Caverns. And it just absolutely blew my blew my mind. And I've been back there since uh, with actually uh, Iwo Takamoto, the son of Mike Takamoto, who designed the Scooby show in the 60s. But Mike and I went on a little road trip. And uh, so you'll notice if you know anything about my shows, and that guy in the plaid shirt, I'm going to talk about him in a second because actually a good story. But um, um, when, yeah, Carlsbad is just is just incredible. So if you know the history of my stuff, there's a Johnny Quest where they go into caverns. It's the Doug Wildey episode. And there's a Swat Cat episode where they go into caverns. And, and our background... Um, background designer for all this stuff, Drew Gentle, said, Lance, you keep doing these cave shows. I can't draw a horizon line with sky above it. I've got to draw everything. I've got to fill up the whole piece of paper because caves have roofs. And I said, yeah, sorry about that. You know, So that guy in this plaid shirt, it's a funny little story. He was an incidental that Jim Stenstrom created for, um, for, for the second movie, which is Ghost. Yeah, this is the only character design that I'm aware that was reused. There was something kind of a little weird looking about him and a little creepy looking about him. And their animators liked him. They took a liking to him and they just kept putting him in scenes, kind of staring at the gang. And 
we noticed that when we got the footage back, like, boy, they like this guy. And so we made a point of putting him in this show in the diner, which is the only time you really see any people um, other than our main characters. So then we snuck him in a cyber chase as a janitor. And what we were going to do if we kept making these movies is keep doing that. And four or five movies down the road, we were going to reveal him as the villain that he'd been stalking them all this time. And they were going to unmask him. And then we we're going to show clips from all the previous Scooby movies he'd appeared in. And people are watching them going, oh my God, they planned this all along. And, you know, of course, we never got to do that. I, I don't know if that incidental is ever used again. Yeah, looking into it, he was used at least one more time, as far as I can tell, um, which was in 2014's Frank and Creepy. Um, partway through the movie, we're shown an anti-mystery Inc. social media group, and he's shown to be a member of it. Yeah, it's a nice little callback to what you were intending for this character. And that was really cool, given the fact that this was well over 10 years after the fact. That's that's pretty funny. So another one of my roles in these movies was um, we would, even though they were sold, we would have to do presentations. We would have to kind of pitch them to make sure that they liked what we were going to make and they were going to spend money on. And by default, I ended up taking drawings Jim did of monsters and various things that we knew were going to be in the movies and color them with markers. And then uh, the Xerox department would blow these things up and put them on boards or standees. And I would just color them. And it wasn't the idea like this is the color that it's going to be in the movie. It's just like it's something to look at. And I did that by default. And uh, Davis actually liked my color sense. And so they ended up just giving my marker comps to the color key team who would who would adapt them. Uh, like when you see the, see the Jeep later, the hippie Jeep later, kind of the yellow with purple decorations and things. I mean, you know, that that was my idea or what the aliens look like with the green and purple. Green and purple is a good villain combination. Like every Spider-Man villain, I think is like green and purple. And uh, so um, that was another aspect. Uh, I, I uh, contributed to these. And years later, when... Davis was at a and Jim were at a company called SD Entertainment doing preschool stuff. Um, I did color key there professionally. So so it was uh the the baby steps in doing that. He likes my color sense. So and there wasn't a lot of prop design, which is mainly what I contribute. So I did color key for a bit. Now back to Scooby. Um another little story is we have about 10 guest stars in this movie and our casting director uh, we had uh, uh, Colette Senderman who's a delight she has a great Rolodex and Chris Zimmerman who uh, who trained her and as a voice director now they're both great voice directors um, have a terrific Rolodex and so for every part except for the main parts we called in about 10 different actors out of her Rolodex they were all fantastic and um, the fact is, everybody was nice. Everybody was great. Everybody nailed the part. And so how do you break that tie? Well, you do it with a lot of it is, well, we worked with them before, you know, and they worked out great. Uh, Jennifer Hale here is, um, who's Dottie the waitress. We worked with her a number of times and she's fantastic. We just love her and we're happy to bring her back in and she killed it. 
she was one of the singers of the Hex Girls in the previous movie. In fact, she was the lead singer in the Hex Girls. And um, uh, the, the, like I said, we, we got, you know, 10 guys reading for, um, um, reading for the, for the Noah Wiley part, Steve. And, you know, Mark Hamill was like, well, we worked with him. He's great. And he's friggin' Mark Hamill, you know? So my uh, punchline to this is we could have cast that show 10 times over. It would have been fine with any of anybody they called it. And if you're a voice actor and you go in for an audition, you can be absolutely perfect and great and nice and they love you and you love them. You still got one in 10 shot of uh, one in 10 shot of getting that job because it's just too freaking competitive. So don't take that personal. Um, that's just the nature of acting in L.A., whether it's voices or what have you. Who could climb that ladder? I'm noticing that. That bunk bed ladder had had really weird slats, but uh, anyway, um, like Howard Morris, the really really famous Howard Morris, who's a gr uh, great classic comedian, uh, was up for Lester as one of the ten guys. But the guy we got, we liked him. This is a little bit better, and so Howard Morris didn't get a job, you know. And he's a freaking legend. So you know, voice actors, my heart goes out to you. That's all I can say about that um let's see yeah a little scooby stuff this is like when they leave the diet now from the scene on the roof uh this is where my writing takes over again um and uh the they're they're abducted in the abduction scene um these aliens were beautifully designed by jim stenstrom and then uh those are my uh, color ideas on them now now the ladder looks okay yeah reasonable and so, um, you know, we kind of, Scooby is always that balance between being scary, but not too scary, funny, but not overtly like goofy all the time, just kind of a nice in between. I think one reason for Scooby's popularity, it's kind of a comfort food. You get a little of everything and nothing is too intense, but there's, but, you know, we always keep it fun. And, uh, the alien abduction. Now, I forgot a giant joke at the beginning of this. We snuck through a really, really evil joke, and it was Lester in the diner. The horrible implications of what happened to him. Talking about he he was describing what happened to him, and he said their heads were this big, and they abducted me, and they experimented on me, and when they were done, they went up to the stars. Now, all that dialogue was in the script. And all we did was cut outside the diner through the window and you didn't hear any of it. So you saw him go, the probe was this big and they shoved it up me and, and the gang goes, ah, gasp. And all we had to do to get away with that probe, that anal probe joke was to drop the dialogue that was written on the script. So that was a very subversive thing that I did. And the only time I did that, and you can innocently look at, and believe me, I thought, I don't want to say believe me, that reminds me of somebody terrible, but um, what my assumption is, is that they would have that fake dialogue in the subtitles, uh, but there were no subtitles on this movie, but I certainly thought they were going to say their heads are this big. I certainly thought that was going to happen. And uh, 
just if you watch it without subtitles, it, it'd be that kind of naughty joke, you know. And between the drug joke and that joke, there aren't any more deliberately hidden Easter eggy jokes. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. You know, you don't want to do that kind of stuff too much. Um, I mean, you did have um, the revelation, Fred, Daphne and Velma sleeping in the back of the van. So what were they doing back there? Yeah, yeah. And people can read into it what they want, you know, but but I felt I felt a little cheap in that I came up with what I felt was a pretty successful shaggy. Uh, love story and then i think that new team was immediately trying to hook shaggy up with one of the hex girls and i was just like man get your own you know get your own ideas and that that was i just heard about that i was ir highly irritated by it but um anyway anyway thinking about this is like as i record this we made this movie in the year 1999 it came out in 2000 and it is 2023, so that's 23, 24 years since uh, uh, then and now. And so if I have any little uh, lapses in memory or I'm a little inaccurate here and there, that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. And if you think about it, Alien Invaders happened 30 years after the franchise was created in 1969, so, you, know, you know, 30 years. So Scooby's been around over 50 years. Pretty crazy. It, it's crazy to think, Ed, these are just as vintage to kids now as the original series was to me when this was the yeah. new Scooby-Doo. Um, one yeah. thing I do want to note that I actually um, just realized watching this, that's a very clever um, twist or clever hint, I should say, is you know, we get the light of the tractor beam coming down on Scooby and Shaggy, but it's mechanical arms that pull them up now. Right. For aliens, like, oh, it's just cool tech. But then the twist at the end is like, oh, that's actually how they would have to pull them up. These right. three guys wouldn't have it. So that's a very um, good little nod that works in both directions, whether you think they're aliens or then at the end, you know, they're not aliens. Right. Right. So, uh, oh, the first meeting of uh, uh, the girls, uh, I, I think Jim did really appealing designs for these two characters. And they're kind of in the Ewo realm. And I mentioned I was going to uh, talk about an Ewo thing. Uh, Ewo was uh, still at Hanna-Barbera till the very end. And Ewo was definitely like, like the great master and hadn't worked in production production in a long time. He was doing, he was doing gallery prints and he was doing signings and he was doing, you know, sort of publicity work. And we weren't using... We weren't wasting them on the on the day to day minutia of uh, production, but you know I know he was over sit, sitting in his office just like you know drawing limited cells and things, and I asked Davis if I could talk to Ewell about maybe doing some key poses for us or things, and Davis kind of didn't want me to bother him. He said, "Well, you know, uh, I I." think it's a little beneath him don't you to do it and and also davis had worked for ewo when davis was doing development and that was kind of his boss it was kind of a different relationship there and i said well do you mind if i ask him I said, well you can ask him and i went over to ewo and and said hi uh you know we're doing this uh, scooby movie and would you mind say going through the storyboard and he was on salary he was being paid anyway so this was free to us he said, would you mind going through the storyboard, picking key 
Shaggy and Scoobies and just doing a really nice, those are my colors, doing a really nice, um, uh, like perfect drawing of them because Shaggy and Scooby models are identical to how they were in the 60s. We just use his drawings. And uh, he was like, you bet, I would love to do that. And he jumped at the chance and he cranked, and I wish I kept these things. I wish I kept copies. So he just went through, found most of the really good Shaggy draw Shaggy stuff, Scooby stuff, and just hit really good drawings of them. And we sent those to Mook. And uh, Mook, you know, and that's one reason why they look so darn good is because of Ewell, uh, just locking them down on character perfectly. And they're characters that it, he he can draw better than anybody, or he, he always could. Um, I mean, he was the original designer, but also his skill level is incomparable. So I was able to get uh, get Ewo involved a little bit, and that was a lot of fun. You'll notice that there is a bit of a costume change for the other three, and that's because their outfits would look really stupid in the desert. You know, if Velma's, if Daphne's wearing a big purple dress and and long sleeves and you know and that kind of thing so we just kind of kept them in the color range and um uh you know made them practical see that that guy at the counter it's that creepy guy um but uh they just look more comfortable you know than the regular of course shaggy's always comfortable and uh scooby's naked so that covers that but uh yeah, I like setting up this this love story. I think we see Shaggy and Scooby like we have, in spite of 30 years of the property, have never seen them like this. And there's even that scene where they clean up and he combs his hair and tucks his shirt in. And um, I cannot remember if that was Davis or that was myself. Um, it was probably a discussion before the script was even written. But uh, I am happy to give Davis that. And all these bits with Dottie and Sergio and things, those are all him. Uh, they're all Davis things, the really good character things. So um, let's see what else is going on here. Um, yeah, I I love Dottie and Sergio. I think these are real fun characters. Um, pretty good design in this, in this uh, movie. And then... Here we go with the love song. The love song was uh, a lot of fun. It's one of two main songs in the show. I think it's the better. I didn't write this one. Jim Stenstrom wrote this one, uh, the lyrics. I think it's really uh, successful and cute and beautifully designed. And uh, uh, it was storyboarded by Scott Geralds, who took over the franchise from us afterwards. And he didn't mind that those terrible scripts, I guess. And uh, but I like all these uh, textured backgrounds because they're only used once. Um, I think we might have even done them in house. I know the shot of the tie dye wedding is a specific piece of artwork that we did because you can't animate that. You have to really just render it as a painting. Um, but this was a lot of fun. And uh, and uh, I think it's really cute and sweet and beautifully designed. Like, I love that shot. It's very 60s. The whole thing's very 60s. And uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's easily my um, favorite part of the movie. I've been listening to the song a lot while I was editing our original video because um, I was using the closing credits and then um, in prep for this. But 
yeah, I really like the going to the 60s sec and, you know, doing their classic designs, classic running and even giving the the other three their original costumes. And I like the yeah. little Hanna-Barbera repeating background joke, yeah. um, much more obvious than the Hanna-Barbera actually did, but still yeah. a great moment. And then, yeah, it's very sweet, um, you know, seeing him like this. And I know you had said you don't think Shaggy had ever uh, been given a romance. Um, Scooby would occasionally, I think, see like a cute dog, but nothing after this level. And Shaggy was given a girlfriend briefly in um, Reluctant Werewolf, the 80s movie. But that was like, you know, kittenish love. Like they're a couple, but they don't do anything. They don't say the word love or anything like that. So this was the first real time we saw them get an actual relationship where you could tell they're in love. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a highlight of the film and gives it its own little juice and it's one of the advantages you can't really do this sort of thing on a, a regular episode you just don't have time to do that and uh so we have we certainly have the luxury of time um i think near the end where they're kind of all investing in the caves and kind of running around a chase scene like in the real world i probably trimmed half of that out now but we had to fill a 70 minute film and uh, a lot of it is telling the storyboard guys, just go ahead, use, you know, pretend this is five minutes and, and you know, do a sequence. Uh, but Scott Gerald did a great job on the song sequence. And he's, he's very keyed into classic, classic, classic Hanna-Barbera lore and, and uh, appearance and things. So he was like definitely the man for the job on that. And so... Um, we, you know, the little there's a little story about why uh, Casey Kasem did not do our movies was he was sort of insisting that the character of Shaggy was a vegan because he had become a vegan. And we were sort of like, it more power to you, but the character that's been established for decades at that point hasn't been. In fact, one of his defining traits is eating everything. And in the uh, uh, in the Zombie Island script, which was already written when this objection came up, he's eating crawdads and things like crazy. And we made scenes out of that. And so it wasn't a matter of just changing a couple lines. It was, you know, it was dropping whole sequences to change a character for the actor's predilection and uh, or preferences. And if you open that door, then the next actor is going to say, well, I don't like the color red. And the next actor is going to say, I want to speak in an accent from now on, you know, whatever. And you just can't open that door. And we gave Casey every opportunity. I love, I love these guys dressed up. Um, we gave Casey every opportunity and he really, and we thought we, he thought we were playing chicken that we'd blink at the last minute. And we recast, uh, we told him the day before that he could come in and we, pay off the other we pay off scott innes but uh he just like you're not going to do it without me you know i said well we have to so uh the next fellow scott Geralds, he um he allowed shaggy to be vegan and so casey came back for that but again those scripts weren't written already <laughs> you know from the get-go and you could kind of 
work with that a little bit but we were we were deep into the cajun thing and uh, you know there was no way so i'm glad casey got to come back and i'm sorry we didn't directly work with him but there you go um and uh and so uh andrew hit me with some prompts with some oh here's another suspect so we try and load these movies with suspicious characters and we try and give them little like moments where hey maybe that guy's got something to hide and uh you know you're trying with it when you're writing a mystery you try and play fair with the audience but you also can't make it too easy and you can't make it too hard so it's a balancing act um but buck's a little suspicious and sergio has a little moment in the diner he's a little suspicious and these guys say a thing or two uh, you know max here is very friendly but they say a thing or two that seems a little off. Um, and then, of course, Velma notices the dirt on their feet. Um, and Yeah, and the oil. And that's all Davis stuff. This is all this is all Davis really uh, keeping the heart of the mystery alive and all these uh, different characters. And um, um, it's it's uh, you know it's a it's a balancing act because you don't want the audience to get ahead of you in seventy minutes, and I mentioned in our little pregame chat that uh, um, you can you know you can you can pull a mystery off in twenty two minutes without much difficulty, but you for an hour and a half you really gotta you gotta be careful that you're not spoiling the fun for anybody or making it too hard. So we have all these little clues. Yeah, when you you did that very well in um, these thir first three ones, especially, I mean, in Zombie Island, you have Bo is pretty suspicious and you are wondering about, you know, Lena and Simone, but no one could have predicted the cat gods thing, you know, and which is right. ghosts. You know, you have the fake witch set up, but no one could have predicted the um, real, uh, you know, the real witch would come. I mean. I guess you could see these moments if they were in the trailers. I know on Witch's Ghost, if you look at the poster, um, Sarah is depicted as the real Sarah's ghost, not the right. universe fictional one. And in this, you know, you throw us through the loop by showing the aliens coming to Earth. And we immediately assume it has to be the bad guys because we then see the right. bad guys spaceship that it just happens to coincide line up with right. the two instances. Well, you see them coming from outer space, buzzing the craft, and then you see the big-headed aliens on scooters. And so you, you're you going to connect those two. We're not going to tell you to connect them, but you're going to naturally connect those two. Was that a hidden Mickey, a cactus? I don't know. Maybe a little uh, bit. Probably not. But uh, anyway, you know, and again, because it's a love story, we put these romantic flowers in the background. We kept, so it's not just a, a desert with a fence. You know, we keep giving you little indications that, that, you know, that there's something sweet about it. Um, now, a little, little word on the designs of the alien craft, um, especially the scooters, was something I noticed in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was that the ships themselves weren't, were just geometric shapes. They weren't inherently interesting, but what you do is you put these colored lights and bands and blinky things around them defining the shape of the object and it becomes like a like a silhouette with light defining the shape of it and color of it and um i saw in person i saw the close encounters mothership with the lights out 
and it looks like a big lump of plastic with other model kits glued to it. But when it's lit up, it is the most beautiful thing you ever saw. And so I certainly took a cue from that. And like I said, I was I was the color guy on the show uh, initially. And so, um, you know, I pick amber colors that would or crystal colors that would complement Shaggy's colors, you know, sort of thing. And um, uh, you can see like the two pairs, they have nice uh, a contrast, but they're also complementary to one another. Uh, whole Scorpion Ridge, that's all Davis. The design of it is, uh, we had a, a fellow named Drew Gentle, who was the main background artist on everything I ever wrote, uh, who's a brilliant, brilliant background designer, took the background lead on this show. And uh, in everything I wrote, which is six SWAT cats and nine Johnny Quests and this, professionally drew to the backgrounds in all of them. And I can't say he ever did a single drawing where, no, nah, that doesn't quite look right. Or that it's always better than what I thought it would be. Like it was certainly his idea to put all the flowers in, that kind of thing. And um, Drew's just really brilliant. And he's a sweet guy. He's really brilliant. And I have to pass the same credit to Jim Stenstrom where he'd come up with characters and I'd say a like the girl and uh, like the, the a girl here, she's kind of a Janine Garofalo type. The girl sitting on the on the bench, kind of a type. But Jim would get in there and really make a meal out of it. We do something really really good. And he's a Noah Wiley type, but he would oh that shirt that's kind of a, this quasi bowling shirt. That's it. Yeah, that's Jim. You know he's so he's so freaking good. And uh, another thing I have to say about Jim, Jim and Davis, but Jim is the guy that hired me in the business. I was in the Hanna-Barbera accounting department. I was in the stockroom for a little bit, and then I was in the accounting department. And I did some samples for 1986 version of Johnny Quest, and Jim hired me into the art department. He gave me my big break. Um, and I was in the union pretty quick, and I was making like, like artist money like pretty quick and I didn't have to work at Bullock's anymore on the side just a department store and so I owe everything to Jim and Jim is currently retired and I work with Jim on lots and lots and lots of projects in fact the project before the one I'm on now I'm on Rick and Morty currently before that I was on Curious George for like six years and Jim was the head character designer so I work with Jim a span of decades, and he is a genius uh, artist. And um, Davis Doy, he's a guy that I could have worked. I worked with him as a producer on a show called, uh, boy, I'm trying to think what it was, it was called Capital Critters, which was kind of a weird primetime show about, about cockroaches and, and rats living in the White House. This is before Trump. <laughs> and uh, and um, uh, now it's worse, I guess, with him. But anyway, um, uh, the show wasn't great, but the experience of working with Davis was so profound that I told him after, I said, uh, Davis, I'll work with you on anything. You know, you, you're, you're the kind of boss I want. And digital camera, we made a digital camera joke when they were brand new. And Mark Hamill's the voice of the guy on the right. <laughs> he he did it. Uh, you can't tell from the end credits, but all these guys did a handful of voices. 
Um, and I forgot who the guy, I think the guy left of the voice of Lester or Sergio, I'm not sure. Uh, and he's doing kind of Robert Stack uh, impersonation. But yeah, that's Mark Hamill on the right. So uh, anyway, um, uh, when I, so Davis, the next thing he got, I think was SWAT Cats. He knew I was interested in writing because I'd pitched to Star Trek Next Generation, failed miserably. But uh, he knew I was interested in writing, so he pulled me in the initial SWAT cat meetings, development meetings, and I contributed ideas to that. And I had a shot at writing that, and that worked out, so I got to write a handful more. But that's because of Davis. And then much later, because he liked my color sense, he didn't really have any writing work for me. He didn't have any prop work for me, but he had color key open. So he said, you're going to have to learn Photoshop, man. And you got you got till Monday to because you're the color key guy. You can't do it with markers like you have been. And so, boy, I, I know. And thank God, because Photoshop is now what I do everything. in. And so that that those two guys, I. I can't express how grateful I am to them, how much I owe them everything. And I guess if I'm going to throw, throw one more in there, it's uh, Glenn Leopold, the fourth member of quote, our quote, our Scooby brain trust. And um, they really did like not treat him well in the, in the second movie where he did so much work on that and uncredited that they gave him a credit on this one. Um, uh, and, uh, Glenn was kind of my boss writer. He was the head writer on SWAT Cats. And we had a little conflict because he was kind of changing my stuff and adding jokes that I thought were kind of juvenile. And it wasn't until years later where I realized Glenn was 100% right in making the show younger and uh, uh, straightening out my kind of newbie uh, rookie errors. And then, and then, uh, when we were on Johnny Quest, of course, I'm, I'm Mr. Johnny Quest. So nobody had to had to watch me. In fact, I was the guy like, oh, that's kind of a Haji thing. And that's it. and he would ask me about Haji's background and things. And he ended up writing whole scripts about it. Um, and Glenn and I ended up having a great relationship on Johnny Quest and uh, on the Scooby movies. So Glenn's another guy. And I learn a lot from him and he's really a dream to work with. He's really super fast and cooperative and has no ego about notes and things so yeah i really love glenn um and uh so that's sort of the you know the core personnel we certainly have other other people that davis is very loyal to people that do well and he keeps rehiring them so if you look at a, a davis toy show you're going to see a lot of the same names crop up and i'm very proud i'm one of those guys so, uh, boy, here we're back with Lester, who's our crazy guy, who turns out he's not that crazy. And um, he's only mildly crazy. Yeah, he's mildly crazy. He's certainly eccentric, but he's out there in the desert, man, doing pretty good Picasso-like paintings. Um, I think Drew uh, probably sketched all those out, but then our painting department really like, we're going to do Picasso with a great painting department. You can see that painting is beautiful, you know? Yeah, I'd legit hang them in my living room. If um, if they ever sold those, I'd buy them. Yeah, absolutely. So they send them overseas and then they interpret interpret our, what they call key paintings, really, really well. 
And all this antic stuff, Scooby needs a lot of little antic things. There's there's that, and there's the snake, and there's, you know, what I'm not sure what Shaggy's looking for. They're looking for the jackalope still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and the jackalope, for sure, was a Glenn contribution, and uh, which I thought was real funny. And dry, I told you I drew through the Southwest all the time. And I've seen a, I've seen a, a taxidermied, like, jackalope a few times you know in diners and things well it's actually because of this movie i thought jackalopes were real until like high school and i'm like oh freaking uh you know lance and davis lied to me here yeah well it's it's a it's a quote-unquote urban legend because taxidermy guys would kind of make it up yeah. from different parts and then uh pretend it was real for it to get the rube tourists you know and so it became a little running joke um but uh, yeah, here we're like giving you a, a little false, a false uh, clue about Buck. And then, um, and of course, there's a little false clue about the paint that, oh, he, he had green paint on his hands. Well, maybe that's because fake aliens need, would need green paint and that kind of, you know, the, all, all these little, all these little bits and pieces. We also, uh, we got to fill out an hour and a half, you know, and uh so it just keeps it keeps it a little interesting. Yeah, the four you did, this has the most red herrings in them. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Zombie Island, they're obviously limited because they're on the island. But um, yeah. well, they're limited here also because uh, small town. Yeah, yeah, it's a real small town and, and our MP guys. And one of them, there's a line that one of them says a little later, it says, I wish we could arrest them. And that is telling you. They're not cops because if they were MPs, they absolutely could arrest them, but they're not. They arrest them. What do they do with them? You know, where do they put them? They can't take them back to a, you know, back to a headquarters or anything. So that's actually a big clue that those are phonies. Um, and a little cute physical. I like that drawing. I, I would I would put that cell on my wall if I had it. Um, and uh so, you know, it's uh, it's just fun. I like, uh, you know, Shaggy keeps trying to make his move and, and, and Scooby's doing better than Shaggy. Scooby wasn't doing great at first, but then he started getting little, little kisses on the cheek. And um, so there you go. Let's see. There's that, that truck. What's it say? No. So oh, no. Yeah, flying the flying saucer. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I think Lester is a really, really fun guy. Oh, that clue. Yeah, did you notice he had uh, green paint on there? Ah. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's um, th this one's very tightly um, woven. And I like how you said, like, yeah, Scooby and Shaggy and Crystal and Amber, by extension, just stupid their way into it. And they're yeah. doing legit investigations here. Um, and it was a good yeah. way to get them reunited, because obviously, like in the original series, these three would go off because they were the boring ones and we want to focus on Scooby and Shaggy. So they do the heavy lifting. Then we get a few minutes of comedy, then, you know, heavy lifting. Um, and it worked very well here, you know, felt very even. Thank you. Well, I, I, I felt it was maybe too much of a challenge for me to do a whole movie with five characters where only one of us talking at a time or six characters, uh, seven counting the dog the other dog kind of thing and those are just awkward when you have those big group scenes 
So we had that we had that issue in Johnny Quest too, where we had a, a main cast of four, and then we were going to have a guest star and a villain, and da da da. So we would often do a Johnny Quest story where Race can't go underwater because he has an ear infection, and it's a story where boy Race would have come in handy, but he's not there. We did with Johnny and uh, Glenn wrote one with Johnny and uh, his dad just on a father and son fishing trip, and things go south. I did one with Johnny and Haji on a dude ranch and it ends up, it's the cave episode with grandpa Doug Wildey, you know? And so it's a mechanism so that characters aren't standing around waiting for their turn to speak. And um, I'm going to really nerd out. I think it's a, a big problem with post captain Kirk star Trek, you know, is that, that everybody has to have a line in that briefing room scene. And I just, I just like the dynamic lead running the story with a few people piping in when appropriate but like doing a um if you were doing a series like a scooby series now and i guess they do now and again i don't think it's a bad idea to focus on a different character each time except shaggy and scooby the leads of that show and you really need to lean on them and as an a plot and then you give a b plot one to velma one to fred one to you know daphne and and I think that's fine, but in something like this, you gotta you gotta really split them up, and you don't want to cramp Shaggy style, you know, by having those other three there. He's hitting on this girl, you know. Exactly. You don't want those other guys like he he'd hold back because the girl's already giggling at him, you know, because he oh you like this girl, tee hee, and it's like wouldn't that ruin all these scenes, you know? Yeah. So you gotta split them up. Boy, that's a hell of a goldmine, right? Find something, find something like that. If, like, if they just put those in their pockets, they would um, never have to yeah. drive around again. But to your point, though, of um, having to split them up and you have awkward moments, um, and you saw that to an extent in um, Cyber Chase when the two gangs are in the diners, because like there's literally times where it's like, okay, the one pair will be doing something, and then the others are just like in the background because now you have double the characters, but you resolve that then later when the gang literally splits up into two pairs. So when they're at the carnival, that at least um, mm-hmm. problem was resolved. But that first introduction diner scene where you had to do that for the gimmick, you know, animating like it was the Patty Duke show at the split screen, um, which I enjoy now as an adult. Um, yeah, you had you were forced to do that here. At least you were able to have the freedom of, OK, they're yeah. splitting up. Yeah, well, that 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 uh, cyber chasing is very problematic because the characters physically look very similar like like okay they have a white of eye now maybe or this little thing this little change and to make a big deal about oh those are the other ones and those are they're and shaggy and scooby look exactly the same except for the white of shaggy's eyes and and also like storyboarding it it was because you don't draw them in minute detail the storyboard guys had to really keep track of which version was which version by writing real shaggy and and old shaggy you know kind of things on every panel every board it was a like that whole thing was there was a guy not thinking you know and um i won't complain about that movie i'll just go away from it but um yeah here's here's of course a variation on like the hallway chase with going through doors is oh it's a cave they can run from above and below and da 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 
And uh, I know I drew those bobcats. There were um, there were uh, uh, some construction outside of the building that we were working on the show. And I saw the bobcats out there and I thought, yeah, that I'll use that. And I went down, took pictures of them and then did models. You know, I thought they were good. Uh, that was a good uh, little inside cave chase vehicle. And bobcats are very versatile. Like you, you can put a uh, that scoop like you see there. You can put a jackhammer on them. They're they're modular uh, vehicles. So anyway, that's where that comes from. Um, so yeah, we're in those. This is my love of Carlsbad Caverns, especially that really long shot. I love that joke where he says Zoinx, 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 where Zoinx echoes. That was kind of funny. That's me. I did that. Made that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, love Jim's aliens. And uh, Andrew, you got to help me a little bit. I'm I'm fumbling. But yeah. Um, well, okay. With the alien designs, um, yeah, they're very interesting because. Um, specifically um crystal um looks like the typical gray-headed alien you would see um you know yeah she has texture to her and all that kind of looks like flowing water almost kind of like a lava lamp which is appropriate for the 60s theme yeah that's exactly what we were going for yeah so um where did like the design to have the aliens the fake aliens look like this because you almost in a sense would assume it would be the reverse that these um criminals would want to lean into the stereotypical alien design and you would almost think then oh we can be more creative with the real alien so where do you guys recall those being standard and the fake ones being more creative well, the idea of the fake ones is their their mission is to scare people away. And so they got to be as scary as they can make them. Um, they have to look credible, but really frightening. Like, they scare the hell out of anyone. And anyone that they can't deal with, the authorities, their fake authorities can deal with. And then, of course, Amber and Crystal, we want them to be, even in their alien form, rather appealing. Um that was uh, Jim's idea is to treat her like a lava lamp. And that was, might've been in the description, but it was definitely to have things inside her that kind of, she's translucent and bits and pieces are kind of bubbling and floating around, which I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen in anything. And then we just had to make that dog turn into a big, big kind of alien, you know, like a strong creature. Um, you know, another twist uh, that was just, that the dog can talk, you know, you talk. Yes, quite well, actually, you know, sort of thing. I'm real happy with that moment. And, and they say, oh, talking dog. Like, oh. And that's great. Fred's joking. I imagine that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty happy with all that stuff. And I kind of, my writing kind of took over uh, in this show pretty much through the end. Uh, as soon as our guys or gang of three find the cave, and then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm writing the climax and the last chase scene and that sort of thing. Now that chase scene uh, earlier was this song, The Aliens Are Here. That is the first song I ever wrote. I still get little bitty residual credits for it. It's not great. My lyrics aren't great. Um, uh, the music's nice. But, you know, I, I actually wrote some songs later that were a lot better and I'm a little self-conscious of it. Uh, I wish I could go back. There's have been been some great Scooby-Doo songs 
that isn't one of them, you know, but, uh, but I hadn't really done it before. Um, well, agree to disagree. That's going to be actually on my um, Halloween playlist for a party I'm doing next weekend. Got a bunch of Scooby-Doo songs and that's one of them. I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure that I love that shot. I'm sure that uh, album will, uh, that album sale will get me like a hundredth of a penny at some point. Exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's that darn Steve, you know, who think Noah Wiley from ER was a, you know, bad guy. Well, and that's actually the thing that um, I find interesting with the twist in this one is because I know as a kid, I had become conditioned the yearly Scooby-Doo movie. The monsters are real. That was literally the tagline to Zombie on this time. The monsters are real. So the twist of like, oh, wow, this is they're just a bunch of people. And we're going back to the standard like, oh, there's you know, this is just for money. But I like how like these are almost like the darkest villains because they're just going to kill them for money. Like, yeah, yeah. The, the cat people like we have to kill you to stay alive. Selfish yeah. motive. But still, we want to stay alive. Sarah Ravenscroft's like, I'm going to kill you because I'm going to take over the world. It's like these guys are like we just want to keep mining the gold. So we're going to just kill the five of you. Um yeah. And it's like, that's that's a pretty um, dark element. So I think, yeah, these characters might potentially get the um, gold medal for just the most evil of the traditional villains. Yeah. And they and, and all three of them look really sweet. And Max is so nice when they meet him. And, you know. Uh, yeah. They're being slightly snarky about bitching about the government, which, hey, who, who would do that? We love our government. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, there's nothing mean about them at all. I mean, like, you know, Lester and um, Buck and all of them are um, a little bit more frightening than these guys are. Yeah. But yeah, we, we see they were pretty good at deceiving us. And even Sergio has that moment, you know, where he's a little dark. And uh, and so if I were as a kid, if I were watching this, I would I would kind of suspect Dottie, <laughs> you know, but um it's uh yeah it's i'm it's uh i'm pretty happy with the the mystery and all and now here's a giant reveal for for everyone you know where we see the girl's true form and it's that old gag where like the thing behind them is the scary thing and they think they're the scary thing yeah but uh the peace symbol is as the the thing that transformed i think that's kind of fun and I like uh, the dog's look. It's really this intelligent look. Um, another nice element that I'm noticing while watching this without the sound on is that we get a nice little detail of Shaggy and Scooby have their eyes closed during this. So this allows them to not be able to see the glowing light behind them coming from Crystal and Amber. Um, it also really helps that now they don't notice the guards right. aren't actually afraid of them, but what's going on behind them. You know, Davis pays a lot of attention to everything. He goes over the board with a fine-tooth comb. So the board artists didn't do that. And we had a great board team on this. Uh, I know Vic Talcelli was a board guy on this. And Alouera Mancio, who's a spectacularly talented guy, uh, did it. And, you know, those are guys we use all the time. Um, or the team used all the time. And so these drawings of Shaggy and Scooby are particularly good when they're flexing and posing and things. That's because Ewell went over it. You know, he took a board panel, he blew it up, and he did a perfect drawing of that. And then we sent it overseas, and then overseas used that as a starting pose. 
So it starts with a really, really strong drawing. And talking historic, hysterically about Hanna-Barbera was they did, they had some great animators, but a lot of the animators were, you know, not as trained, not as experienced, but the layout department was extraordinary on every show. So uh, that's the heart of why Johnny Quest, the Flintstones, other things look so good. And it's a little, a little dumb point, but you were talking about there were only 26 episodes of a show. Well, the original Jetsons, only 26 episodes. Original Johnny Quest, only 26 episodes. And in fact, Jetsons, this will mess people up maybe, is you think Astro and Rosie are in every episode. They're in like two episodes each out of the 26. They're barely in the series, but you see them in the opening and closing credits. So you kind of assume they're, no, they're, the show is mainly about the four family members. So, uh, um, yeah, these are, these are like Ewo had a lot to do with that, uh, that kind of very specific, really great drawings. And the, these, but these MPs, like, like I said, I, I tighten the editing up here now, as far as like, they advance slowly, like two or three times in the show. And, and yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like seeing, uh, uh, seeing the flaws, but I think overall it plays. And it's pretty entertaining and it has some good twists. And, uh, um, you know, that uh, Fred's rescue and so forth kind of makes sense. So they didn't draw the peace symbols. They drew like X's on in that shot. But um, yeah, I think this worked pretty well. And so the three big guys, we have to keep knocking them out or capturing them a few times. Because Noah Wiley and and Ginny Garofalo there are not going to be really physical, yeah. But those those three guys are are like the muscle, you know. Exactly. And, yeah, but when that uh, the alien dog like can wrap a steel beam, you know, that's like the enforcer. Character. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that that's a horrifying concept. Yeah. To see play it out, but yeah, no, it's um. It's great. And I think, um, you know, you're pointing out supposed flaws, but that goes to why I was referring to um, at the beginning that I go back and forth. I think Zombie Island and Witch's Ghost are my, um, I think, are the best ones. But I love this one. And it might come across to some people as not a compliment, but I do mean it's a high compliment of this reminds me of Back to the Future 3, you know, Southwest, um, Western theme also in there. But I like that this one feels the most unique even of these four ones that you guys worked on because yeah shaggy and scooby are the comedic foils like they're never given anything too deep in any of the uh, even ones you guys did let alone like the other shows where it's really surface but to give them a lot of character depth and a lot of character growth and i know it just you know stayed isolated to this one it's not like they became very soulful in cyber chase they're back to you know doing their you know, usual thing, but I really liked what you guys did with what characters that are usually um, considered paper thin. I think it's an unfair um, attack on Hanna-Barbera to like um, that. A lot of people criticize like, oh, they're not very sophisticated, but you know, there is some level of like, yeah, they're pretty, you know, simplistic, you know, they're the comedic relief, goofy guys we love to watch. But you know, when you write them like this, this is pretty soulful um, stuff for the two of them. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I'm really, really happy with the, I think we stuck the landing on the goodbye scene. 
Um, and th this is really good animation for the, these uh, these bobcats. I love the the jousting shot where it starts with him and the camera kind of turns around to follow them. It's really good, really good animation. That's a good uh, you know visual gag. Um, but uh, we're you know I would never take offense to somebody saying that they liked. Zombie Island or Witch's Ghost more than this one. I think all three are really solid and it depends on what you like. And like I said, Witch's Ghost was slightly, well, needed a little fine tuning. That's, it needed a, a third act uh, with the real stuff. But I think it's a really good mystery that the, the, the writers that provide us this script came up with where everybody was guilty. And that's why it was a hard one to solve. It was the whole town was in on it. So it's a little like Agatha Christie, Murder on the Orient Express, where everybody killed the guy. And um, that's something Scooby had never done. I think it's a really, really strong uh, basis for story. And that way you can't, well, it can't be that guy because you see him in the scene with the witch's ghost. Well, it can't be this other guy because, you, well, they were taking turns, you know. Exactly. So that's a great mechanism uh, to, uh, yeah, those work really well. I'm glad they didn't like physically blob them into back and forth. They kind of made a transformation, you know, well, one thing, the blob thing would be harder to animate, but it's, it's more appealing if you don't see them like rubberize into a different thing. And boy, they draw her cute. They draw her like super cute. No, you, you could see besides the sixties aesthetic, why um Shaggy falls for her. And Oh yeah. Yeah. She's really charming. Great voice work um I yeah mean, it's Cher you know who wouldn't love yeah. Cher yeah Cher Cher in the 60s was something something you know and um um and the dog is a, is a really really cute design and looks like a good you know looks like a good pairing with uh Scooby too but that little that little detail of scarf is kind of a hippie-ish thing but it also hides the medallion so that was you know we're thinking we think about this stuff and, um, um, but like I, I, I was saying, like, I think Bull Zombie Island and Witch's Ghost are very strong. I would like to, my ego would say this is a very strong movie as well. And I don't feel like one is extraordinarily better than the other two. Uh, I, I, which I think uh, Zombie Island's the best one of the three because we really didn't hold back on that. We really went for it. And, and we weren't being watched by anybody or interfered with anyone. We just turned this thing in and it got produced. Um, the fourth movie is the best looking one, you know, or script, the best looking one. So they all have, they all have advantages. That's a beautiful shot, you know. Yeah, the and, lighting across this entire movie is really great, but here especially. Oh, and I, I'm going to say a technical thing is, okay, the helicopter's over the that disc, well, that disc is like like a colander. You know, it's got holes and holes and holes all over it. So the so the propeller force is going to push right through the disc. The disc is like it's it's like nothing. You know, it's insubstantial. It's a frame. You know, if you imagine how drones, you know, have a little cage under under the propeller sometimes. So just it's not like it's not like carrying a, like that dish back there. That the, the propeller blows right through it. 
No, very, very subtle design choices you guys put in here. So, I mean, I, as a little kid, we wouldn't have cared. But it, now as an adult, it's like, oh, it actually, that does still make sense. So it still works. This is great. Really good animation, too. Really good. Great drawing. And I wanted them to turn back into their aliens, alien form. But she's still kind of appealing, you know. But really show the lava lamp. So we... So, of course, like any of these things, you know, you pick your moments where you're really picky. You know, you want them really, we need this really strong. And you make a note on the storyboard, like this scene, we're going to be sending this back if it isn't perfect. And um, we need these particular handful of scenes to be a 10. And I don't know, like, like I said, we're like, uh, I got our voice director kind of crying in that scene, <laughs> you know just reading it and um this is mark clearly this guy's mark hamill again this uh, cia or fbi agent um and i would have gotten away with two shut up you yeah i like the subversion you guys did in um these ones like with that like you know with him like fred being like oh that's always our problem and you know, like silencing them um it worked, you know, as a little kid, like, oh, because we've seen 52 other episodes of Scooby. They're probably doing a Scooby-Doo marathon leading up to this premiering on yeah, Cartoon yeah. Network. So it's it was yeah. funny as a kid, but then it's like really funny as adults. Like, OK, the, the, the cops wouldn't let them like be doing this grandiose speech. Like, OK, get, get in the car. And uh, Mark Hamill was sort of like, because remember, he's playing two guys in that scene. But uh, uh, and they're they're like hilariously. Oh, he's got pictures. That'll get us off the hook and da da da. But uh and she just slams that door like they're like animals, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh Hamill actually said, wait a minute, I get the line and you don't let me say the whole line. I said, Mark, that's the joke. <laughs> you think you're oh. gonna and then Buck, you know, he's his little reversal. Uh yeah, I I make these flowers and uh and uh I mean, this guy who's got to be like pushing seven feet tall. He's like, a t like a foot taller than Fred. Yeah, yeah, he's, this, yeah, he's a scary guy, but he, but he's a little, like, has this little delicate habit, and and uh, I did, I don't know about that design. They don't look like pressed flowers. They look like illustrated flowers, but whatever. I, I got it. Yeah, it, it, he tells you what they do. They are so. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's this is a nice, and you see the wind down, you know, we had our climax, and now it's uh, uh, the denouement, or the coda, whatever you want to call it, and then uh, poor Shaggy and Scooby, they're destroyed. I'd love to own that, so. But you can't leave the movie on that note. Yeah. So it's like, oh, they get some food, they're fine, you know, kind of thing, and and. Turns out they are shallow, but we we're not making it shallow. We're just we don't want to leave the audience in a in a in a bad mood, you know, w with our guys. Yeah, know, no, you know they love them, but yeah, they they've been a they're able to move on and you know still yeah, find the joy in life. You know it. Yeah, that's all. Uh, I'm not sure why my own Scooby Doo here. I'm not sure why they um, why we changed the mystery machine. Uh, I don't mind it, you know, um, but I guess we something happened to Velma back there. I don't know. But 
yeah, it's fun. It's fun and cute. And the sun sunrise over the desert, you know, it's a nice moment. Little jackalope. Ba, ba, ba. Wow, I did manage to talk my way through this whole whole thing. Yeah, no, we didn't have any dead periods. And this has been um, a lot of great fun. So as we start wrapping up again, Lance, thank you for not only creating this, but um, coming on. This has been a lot of fun and very informative. Well, thank you. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I had a lot to do on this one. You know, I helped came up the basic story, co-wrote the script, supervised the models, did the initial color key. We're all aware of it. Yeah, the two Scott Hill's a good friend, Lynn Hunter, Scott. Yeah, all this, all these guys. Everyone in these credits are friends of mine. Um, Mark Vaughn. So I saw him yesterday. We had uh, we had dinner yesterday. I got an art coordinator credit. Real nice. They have like five credits in this. Um, and uh, it was it was a really good time. My best best time ever has to be Johnny Quest. I would have, if somebody put a contract in front of me that you're going to be doing this for 20 years, what I was doing on that show, and it was a lot of work, I would have signed that sucker immediately. I would have signed a lifetime contract to keep coming up with Johnny Quest stories, you know. Um, but this was pretty good, too. Anytime you get the the Davis story crew together, I, I have a good time. And... You know, like I said, Jim was on Curious George. Well, Davis was on Curious George. And I was like one of the first guys he hired on that project. And that was a six-year job. That was the longest job I've ever had on one show. Uh, so I owe that guy everything. You know, I'm sitting in a house that he he paid for, basically. So, uh, and then you were getting into the into the overseas credits here. So this is, Andrew, this is your last chance to ask anything and i will tell you the unvarnished truth what's your social security number uh no <laughs> um yeah i guess um one thing that i just really, really um, want to know with this is you know we've done several sequels to other famous scooby-doo products mm -hmm. um zombie island 13 ghosts do you think there would be a future for crystal and amber coming back and do you have an idea of how you would want to have done that well i certainly see why not uh, there's a bond there. There's no break. Maybe they have to come here. I mean, I don't, boy, an idea for that show. I would guess I'd go, you know, more than one alien kind of thing. And, you know, they'd run into them, but she'd be in a group of people and they're all like different, but the, now they're contemporary because they've under, they under, understand the, um, uh, the time dilation so they're dressed like contemporary thing. And Shaggy's like, I liked it better before, you know, kind of thing. So that'd certainly be a thing. Oh, it's a cute little, cute little thing. And it's really, really well animated. Yeah. Boom, boom. Beautifully drawn. Beautifully drawn. That was, I promise you that was Ewo, like doing five or 10 drawings for that. And too bad on Cartoon Network, that probably would have been squished to the side while advertising something else. But full screen here. The other thing is as far as I know, and I have not been contradicted, this was the very last thing that said a Hanna-Barbera production at the beginning and the end. Like they will acknowledge characters created by and things like that, but it it's going to open, I think the next movie opened with Bugs Bunny and the dun-dun-dun-dun and the WB logo. 
this was the last show in history that opened with the Hanna-Barbera logo. Unless you know differently. Yeah, not counting Powerpuff Girls, as that was an ongoing series prior to this. Um, Cyber Chase was the last thing that Hanna-Barbera Productions produced. And yeah, it sadly got folded up shortly thereafter into Warner Brothers. And um, yeah, it's a real shame. Both Bill and Joe had passed away and... Their company that brought, you know, entertainment to tens of millions of people around the world, you know, was no more. And it's a it's a real shame. You know, anytime I drive past the old studio on Kwanga, um, I, you know, get a little emotional inside. But, you know, no longer making cartoons. It's an apartment complex now. Yeah, some condos and a big health club right now. Yeah, it was actually one of my dreams in life to um, live in there where the history was made. But I couldn't live next to the 101. <laughs> They were nice to keep some of the architecture, you know, and not just demolish yeah. it and rebuild some. They kept some pieces. Which is the exact opposite of how L.A. usually does it, where they're just like, eh, historically significant, <laughs> tear it down. Uh, Warner Brothers Ranch that I was on for a long time on a lot of WB shows, that was a venerable location. The, the Walton house was there and the, the Leave to Beaver house was there. A lot of things. And the Friends Fountain, but I call it the Omega Man Fountain because I prefer that to Friends. I think it's actually funnier. <laughs> Shots fired. We were on that ranch for a long time and uh, like pretty much in trailers that were kind of hooked together in ergonomic. My uh, One of my former roommates, Skip, who was the guy that told me, hey, come over to Hanna-Barbera. They, they fired the stock boy because he was in the mailroom. And and I went over there. So Skip really got me going. But um, Skip was a prop master and he was on a show called The Middle. And that was filmed on that lot. And that lot is officially leveled. I don't know what they're going to use the land for. I had heard condos, so I'm assuming that's true. Well, it wouldn't surprise me because that's the thing. But Warner Brothers had built, just finished a big construction right up near the 101 freeway a big office tower that's all theirs and they took cartoon network which is an independent company from warner brother animation and they went nope you're all one thing now bump and moved them into that building and uh of course i know that feeling because that's exactly what happened to hannah barbera when warner brothers bought them is we were moved out of coenga into the uh, sherman oaks uh imperial bank building and where first season of Batman, first couple of seasons of Batman Animaniacs and all the Tiny Toons, and they're all done in that building. And then I think we did one of the last Scooby movie maybe in that building. I'm not 100% sure. Given when it was made, it was either completed or at the very least started there. Um, but I think that's a good note to end on. Um, again, Lance, I'd really like to thank you for coming on. This has been a joy getting to talk with you again and really diving deep into Alien Invaders. Um, so yeah, if you haven't checked out the original video me and Lance did going into everything, the link will be in the description. I highly recommend it. It is a wealth of information and we got into a lot of other good topics. So until then, you know, Lance, I hope we can have you back again sometime. You know, maybe we can do some commentary tracks on Johnny Quest. I would love to do that. Yeah. And uh, and or uh, SWAT cats. SWAT cats would be a really fun one to do, too. Um, well, until then, I'm Andrew Wasser, Second Rate Film School, here with animation guru Lance Falk, and I hope you've enjoyed your time with us. Thank you. And it, it's been fun. And my dog said it's been fun. Have a nice day.